0: Well, we're going to go ahead and get back into the book of Hebrews. And uh, uh, I hope we will be blessed by this one today because this one today has one of the uh, toughest and, and uh, scariest passages of Scripture in it. Um, if you don't really take a look at what it's saying, if you just read the words, and uh, it can really get you going the wrong way. So I'm glad to, to dig into that today. But uh, today we want to look at uh, some things here. One. Um, There really is only one path to salvation. That's not uh, uh, questionable. There is no other way. The only path to salvation is Jesus Christ. And we can't look to anything else to redeem us from our sins. Your only other option is to die and be judged. Other than that, there's no other way that, that that a man can be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. And for this audience that the, the, the author is speaking to, the temptation would have been, because you remember this is uh, written to, to uh, Jewish Christians, their temptation would have been to go back to the Mosaic system, to go back to, to, the, to the Mosaic law and the Mosaic system of salvation that they had lived under before. But the author today is going to spend some time really warning these Christians and warning these readers that there is no going back. And if you want to go back, you're just going to submit yourself to judgment. There is no other way to be saved. Once that Jesus is the only way, there's no way to go back. So he says, instead, continue uh, to have that faith that you had in the beginning and ensure that that faith endures to the end so that you would secure your heavenly blessing. So that's the gist of today. One path to salvation, there's no other way. So continue in your faith. Otherwise, you're going to be lost to judgment. But since we have so much to go over, we're just going to dive right into it. Hebrews 10, 19-21 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. And these three verses are going to kind of summarize what he's been going over for the first part of this chapter, and really since chapter 7. This is kind of the the. the the summarization of chapters 7 through 10. And it's that we have confidence to enter the holy place, where we've talked about that we can now go into the holy of holies. It was previously uh, just for the, the high priest. So the, the first thing is that we can enter that holy of holies. Jesus, through Jesus' death, which he obviously gave his life for us, we can finally enter the holy of holies. We can, and, and you remember that previously... Only the high priest could do this, and he could only do it once a year, and he had to follow a a lot of purification rituals before he was ready to go in, requiring the blood of bulls and goats. But after Jesus gave his his life, and after shedding his own blood for us, he did that once and for all. As a result of that, he opened the curtain to the Holy of Holies to us. And you remember that the day Jesus died, the curtain was, was torn in two. And you can talk to, look at different commentaries and different historians. Some say that that curtain was as wide as the width of the, the palm of a man's hand. This, this wasn't uh, like our curtains that we have hanging up over the, the pipe and drapes right here. This was a massive piece of cloth that was ripped when Jesus gave his life. And it was a symbolization of that, the, the, the veil being torn, that we could now enter into the Holy of Holies and be with, with God face to face. We didn't have to go through an intermediary. We didn't have to go through the priest. We didn't have to go through any of that. But we actually got to go straight through. This was a, this tearing of the curtain was a, was a symbolization of a, the reality that happened in the Spirit, that we could now have free access to God. See, one of the things that I don't think we recognize when you read the Old Testament, you don't really think about it much, but they didn't have free access to God. They weren't able to speak to God. There was very few. Only the prophets could speak to the people as the voice of God, and the prophets could speak to God. But this idea of us waking up and praying and speaking with God, that wasn't something that was available to them. But we have free access to that. And church, I want to remind you, never let your mind become dull to that reality. Never become jaded or take that for granted that you have free and full access to God. What an incredible privilege that is. You know, I I think about it when I look at earthly stuff and try to think of of comparisons to how that would be. That would be like you being able to call up the President of the United States whenever you wanted and talk to him. You could just visit him whenever you wanted. And you may not know this, but the, the, and if you're struggling with the person, think of the <laughs> office. If you're struggling with the person, think of the office of the president. The reality is that we can't just call up and meet him. We can't just go see him and talk to him whenever we want. Matter of fact, any of us in this room, if we tried, we would never make it. We would never have the opportunity. And I don't know if you know this, but the president falls way under God as far as majesty and power and authority. And we have free access to him. I I don't, I don't think you recognize the privilege that is to be able to have that. And the reason this is possible is because we have a great high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. And he's the one that makes it possible for us to draw near to God. He is the one who makes it so that we can share in the hope of living forever in his presence because of what Jesus did. So because of that, he goes on to say, in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As we go over the next several verses, we're gonna see how, as Christians, how we, would, we should respond to this reality that he summarizes in verses 19 through 21. And he talks about how we should, we should respond, and there's three ways that we should respond. Uh, one is in faith, one is in hope, and the, the third is in love. And when you're looking at the scripture and you're studying it, people that are smarter than me and know Greek, they tell me that, well, they don't tell me I read what they said. <laughs> I can't even call them up, let alone the president. But they, they, I read what they say, and they say that the Greek used theirs in the present tense. And what that means is it's not something that has happened. It is something that is happening, something that we continue to do. We have to continue in faith. We have to continue in hope. We have to continue in love, not just do it once, and it's done with. So we have to continually operate in these three things. Not a one-time thing, but this actually becomes part of our character, who we are, and the way we live our life. So then it says that we are to draw near with a true heart. Other translations translate that to a sincere heart. So we draw near with a sincere heart or a true heart in full assurance of faith. So what does it mean to come to God with a true or a sincere heart? First, it means you don't come half-heartedly. It means you don't just come part way or, I guess I'll do this today. Nothing better to do. It means that we come to him wholeheartedly. God is not looking for lukewarm individuals. He's looking for people that are coming with true and sincere hearts. It also means that we, we don't come with improper or ulterior motives or pretenses our desire should be to draw near to god as a response to what he's done for us not as a means to get more that song that we sang today uh nothing else one of the the lines in it um always reads weird to me but it does have some truth and he says Jesus, you don't owe me anything. I'm not here to get something. But the reality is is that that that's how we should approach God. We're not coming for some sort of holy slot machine, hoping that we're going to pull the lever if we pray this day and get something from God. We don't come to him to get. We come to him because we've already received so much. It's a natural response. And then finally, coming with a sincere heart means to come with undivided and sincere worship. That means he's to be preeminent in our lives. Jesus should be at the forefront of everything that we do. That means going to work, eating your dinner, everything that we do. He should be at the forefront of what we do. How how do you make Jesus the forefront of your work? Well, the simplest and easiest way is just to work under God instead of working under men. And you'll be amazed that if you live your life in such a way, people will see God and you and begin to ask questions and give you opportunity. Or we make him the preeminence in our life. And the reason that we can come and do this, he says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, we can come with a true heart and assurance of faith because we have been cleaned from an evil conscience. And we are clean, having been washed in the blood of Jesus. (laughs) See, there's some things about salvation people really struggle with. There's the reality that you are clean the moment that you accept Jesus Christ into your life. But some people never let their conscience be cleaned, and they let their past take up residence in their life, and it destroys them. That's why when you ask for forgiveness, just say, thank God, you're forgiven, and move on. There's no point in focusing on the sin. Instead, focus on Jesus. But we can, we can come to him with a full assurance of faith because not only have our hearts been cleaned, but our conscience has been cleaned as well. That's why Paul said that I, that I know nothing against me. It's not that Paul lived a sinless life. It's just he understood the reality that Jesus paid for it all and washed it away. And if it's already paid for, you can have a clean conscience, amen? And then he continues on in verse 23, let us hold fast. to so the first one, like I said, as we have full assurance of faith. We continue, we continue to operate in faith. The next one is hope. He says, then let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we're supposed to hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering. This means to to hold fast to what we believe about God and what we believe He has accomplished inside of us. We must maintain our faith until the day of our last breath. We, we, We hold on to that hope. We maintain that confession until the day of our last breath. We continue to operate in it. Part of being saved is believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. And we make a confession the day that we say we confess that we are saved, that we are made righteous. We confess that we receive that. And because of that, we have hope for eternity. But we have to maintain that confession without wavering. Because the problem is, is if you stop maintaining that confession, you'll run into issues. We're going to look at that today. There's a lot of people that that think, uh, and we've talked about this in Bible studies and all that stuff. This idea of once saved, always saved. And to me, it seems there's two different versions of that. One one version is that uh, if you get saved and you fall away, that you were never really saved, because if you really were saved, you couldn't be unsaved. And then the other version is uh, if you get saved, and 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 I, I see this a lot with with parents. He said, oh, no, my kids, when they, were, when they were 10, they asked the Lord into their life, and then they, they just become complete heathens, and so they must still be saved. They, they, they were saved once, so they're always saved, no matter how they live their life. And I don't think that's right either. And we're going to look at that, some of that today, and this is the whole idea of, of holding fast to your confession. Why would we have to hold fast to something if it wasn't necessary to do so? So I maintain that if you get saved... And then one day you walk away, you were saved until you walked away. The interesting thing about the ones where, where uh, it's, it's a silly argument, this whole idea of once the, the idea of, of if, you say, if you were saved and you lived saved and then you walked away, some say you never really were <laughs> saved. I would say you were saved in that period, but ultimately the end result is the same. If you're not saved, you die you have a problem. So it's not even really worth arguing about the semantics in the middle. Let's just make sure that we hold fast to our confession, no matter what, amen, without wavering. So in addition to that, though, the life that we live should be directed by the hope that we have confessed as well. The truth is, is that, that uh, if you make a confession for that not to waver, there should be some evidence of that confession in your life. There should be a difference in who you are now and who you used to be, who you were before you made that confession. And then finally, the reason that we can have this hope, that we can hold on to it, is because the one who promised is faithful. How many of you know that, that, it, that it's, it's, it's hard to hold on to hope if the person that promised you something is wishy-washy? You ever met somebody like that? They promise you something, but they never come through? Matter of fact, we have an expression for it. We don't want to get our hopes up. <laughs> But the reality is, is the one who promised this is faithful. It's not something that can be stolen away or taken away. The only thing that you can do is give it away. But if you'll maintain your confession, you can walk in faith, because the one who has promised is faithful, and we don't have to have any fear that our faith or our hope is in vain, because He will come through. Amen. And then in verse 24 through 25, we're going to talk about love. So right, we're going to continue in faith, we're going to continue in hope, and we're going continue in love. He says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How many know that you guys should be exercising love and good works? All right. matter of fact, a lot of people decide this, 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 this hatred of works because they, they, they misunderstand things. Now, works can't save you. But when you get saved, the Bible says you are saved for good works. You should st- there should be evidence of that salvation. There should be evidence of that. So we should, so we should be exercising love and good works. But not only that, we should be encouraging and, and inspiring one another to the same. We should be encouraging and inspiring one another to love and, and, and have good works as well. Because the reality is is that we all share the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross. And as a result, we have a responsibility to show the love that we have received to others. And the first step to this is not forsaking the meeting together. There seems to be, uh, it seems to be all the more common, especially after COVID and after we all had to, to, to meet remotely. And uh, the beginning of COVID. So over the last few years, due to COVID, it seems to be there's so many who haven't returned to church. Most people that I've talked to, or or I've I've, I've uh, talked to other pastors, and they've talked to other pastors. What I'm hearing is that, that most churches, much like this one, is is operating at about 40 to 60 percent of the people coming to church than before COVID happened. I guess the convenience of of watching from home is too great. And that becomes an excuse to not actually meet with other Christians. And I guess, you know, I think at this point, if people were actually just active in the systems that we put up to make um um uh, to make a fellowship together and, and communicating even outside of physically being together, I would be uh, uh, less bothered by it. But the truth is is that most people have gotten to the point where they don't even watch the services anymore. They don't even go to the online groups and communicate with one another anymore. The reality is, is that, that we're not really seeing the participation that we should be seeing if people are claiming, oh, we're just staying home and watching the service. But here's the thing. If you look at the whole point of this, why are we not supposed to be neglecting to meet together? Because if we don't meet together, how can we stir up one another to love and good works? If we don't meet together, how can we encourage one another? If we don't meet together, how can we support one another? You know, it's part of the... The, the, what I meant, uh, preached on last week was, was discipleship and getting together and encouraging and helping one another grow. And it turns out that just fits perfect for this weeks, it just slid right into it. We're supposed to meet to get together. And the thing is, as he says, don't neglect this responsibility. Don't neglect it, because the day is drawing near the reality is is that jesus is going to come back and if he comes back this year we want to be in a position that we're ready for it how many know that it's easier when people are walking alongside of you encouraging you and stirring you up somebody says don't neglect to meet together as the habit of some but encourage one another all the more as days are drawing near matter of fact it says don't neglect meeting together but you should meet together more So you can encourage one another. And we mustn't neglect this responsibility. And truthfully, I think we need to recognize what a privilege it is. If you're a a, a Christian like we are in China, you don't get to just go to church. If you're a a Christian in in, uh, Iran, you can't even say that you're a Christian. You can't mention it at all. They'll kill you. And those, in those countries that have it like that, they're still coming together. They risk everything to share the gospel with somebody because they might be sharing the gospel with somebody that's an undercover police officer or, or a soldier that's going to turn them in. But they do it anyway because it's worth it. And they risk everything to come together with other believers to meet and encourage them. I don't know. Maybe we just don't have it hard enough that we think we need help from others. Life is just too easy here. And then he goes on in verse 26 through 27. And this is that scary verse that I was talking about. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This verse is coming in light of what we just read, right? Coming off the end of the day drawing near. And because of that, we need to recognize some things. That if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And if I'm being honest, this verse used to scare the crud out of me. Because if you're not careful... And you read this verse by itself at face value, without taking into the context the rest of this chapter, and really the whole rest of the book, which you remember, the whole point of this book is to prove that Jesus is a superior high priest in sacrifice and salvation. But you can come to the conclusion, if you just read this, that if you sin, any time after you got saved, you're SOL. That's probably not a good word to use while I'm preaching. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't say it out loud, though. Sorry. Sort of, out of luck. sort of out of luck. That's what I meant. What were you guys thinking? I can't believe you. Hallelujah. I just want you to know it's serious. <laughs> it's serious if, if, you, if you're going to make your way to judgment. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, thank you for forgiving me. Sort of out of luck. I'm going to have to remember that one. (laughs) The thing is, though, (laughs) the funny thing is, when I wrote my notes, I wrote it specifically so that I wouldn't say anything bad. This is what my note says. Any point that you sin after becoming saved, then you're up a creek without a paddle. (laughs) See, I tried to think. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But that's the way you can read this, though, right? If you look at this, you're like, "Oh no, I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm in a bad because I'll be honest, I've sinned since I've got saved, and that seems to be to to, to put me in a, a particular uh, a spot." But let's look at really what's being discussed here in this chapter. First, I want to settle your mind just as I've settled my mind that, that it's not referring to us not having any hope if we do something stupid after we get saved and sin. John said that if we do sin, we have a mediator in Christ. And forgiveness of our sin refers to all sin, not just those sins committed after we were saved. You see, the thing that we can get in our head is, is that, you know, your past sins are forgiven, but any future sins aren't covered but one thing to think about when jesus died two thousand years ago how many of your sins were future sins all of them unless you're that old Which i don't think there's anybody that old the reality is is that all of our sins were future sins when jesus died he paid for all of our sins if jesus only paid for sins that happened before he gave his life on the cross then all of us are in a bad place so forgiveness of sins isn't to do with when they happened. We have a mediator no matter what. So let's go think about what what Pastor Joseph preached on last week. The first part of this chapter was a description of Jesus' one-time sacrifice for all sins. Past, present, future, one-time sacrifice for all sins. And there was no need to repeat sacrifices like the previous priest had to Every year, right? The, every year, they would go into the to the temple for all the people, and then throughout the year, if you sinned, you were bringing sacrifices left and right to take care of those things. Verse eighteen, the the right before we started this says this: where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Seems like very similar wording, right? You'll also notice at the end of verse twenty six says very similar things. After receiving the knowledge, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Verse 18 that says there's no longer an offering for sins where there's forgiveness of these things. The point being is that Jesus was the only valid sacrifice for sins. Jesus was the only sacrifice that's going to take care of it. Even the, 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 the blood of bulls and goats was only a stopgap measure until Jesus finally gave his life, shed his blood for all sins, past, present, and and future, and there is no remaining sacrifice that will take away the guilt and debt of sins. And verse 26, that was verse 18. And verse 26 says in a very same way, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Jesus was the sacrifice. That's it. There's nothing else. So this deliberately sinning here is not talking about your individual sin what it's talking about here is a rejection of jesus Christ's sacrifice for sins if you have knowledge of the truth and you reject jesus you walk away there's no other sacrifice for sin you got to remember he's talking to jewish christians who may be tempted to try to go back to the mosaic system and the Mosaic priesthood, and, and the, 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 the Aaronic priesthood, and, and that way of doing things for forgiveness of sins. And he says, listen, if you go on sitting deliberately after receiving all the knowledge of truth, if you go on rejecting Jesus and living your life the way that you were doing before, there is no other sacrifice for sins. You can, you can kill as many bulls and goats as you want. It's not going to do a thing for you. He didn't want his people hearing the people hearing this to think that they could just go back to Judaism and it would be okay. Be okay. There's no longer a sacrifice after Jesus that that's, that's functional because He is the only one. You know, at some point, the Bible says the temple is going to re- be rebuilt and sacrifices will 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 start happening again. But the reality is, is, there's no point. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins when you have forgiveness of these things so if you want to go back to an old the old system the only thing that is available for you is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries but the reality is is this warning isn't only for jewish christians it's applicable to us as well It applies to anyone who would turn away from Christ and put their faith in any other method, system, or religion to try to to make up or atone for their sins other than Christ. Or even just a rejection of religion in in general. You know, There are many people that believe that God doesn't exist and they can just live however they want and and they don't have to worry about salvation. But the reality is, is that they still need a Savior. And if they reject Christ... There's nothing that they can do, no sacrifice, no system, no way of living that is going to take care of it. The reality is is there's only one path to salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ, accepting him as your Lord and Savior, receiving the free gift of salvation, receiving the reality that he gave his place instead of you. He he, He went in your place and gave his life so that you wouldn't have to. And if you reject that free gift, there's only one outcome. And that's an expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Amen? And he continues on. With this argument in verse 28 through 31, he says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of a living God. <laughs> remember, this letter is target audience is Jewish Christians, and they would have been very familiar with Mosaic Law. And under Mosaic Law, if you refuse to obey it on the evidence of two or three witnesses, you could be put to death. Let me read to you Deuteronomy seventeen two through 7 It says, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant... So they're not talking about a a specific sin, they're talking about disobeying Mosaic law, transgressing the covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them. This is rejection of Mosaic law, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and that has told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. Aren't you glad that even in these situations, God wants to make sure that what's happening is really happening? says you must inquire diligently. There must be two or three witnesses. You can't just point fingers at somebody and cause them to be killed. In verse 4, though, it says, And it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates the man or the woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So that's what he's talking about here. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. To the Jewish people, rejecting the law of Moses was one of the gravest of sins. Now, if a person sinned unintentionally, there were sacrifices that they could make to atone for that sin. But for this, for a person to reject the law, there were no sacrifices to make up for that. For this, there was no mercy. So if God required death for rejecting the old covenant, how much more so do you think is going to be required of those who reject this new covenant? and better covenant and he really paints the picture of, of what this rejecting of jesus entails or what it looks like first he says that how much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of god this idea of trampling underfoot the son of god is having a contempt or a disdain for jesus have you ever met anybody like that they have a contempt or disdain for jesus they're trampling underfoot word of God. And this, in this particular case, you've got to remember he's talking about people who have known the truth and then are rejecting Jesus. It's even worse for them. They've heard the truth. And in this particular case, he's talking to Jews who have become Christians who are tempted to go back to the old way. He says that you're, you're, you're trampling underfoot the son of God. And then he says you're profaning, profaning the blood of of the covenant, right here. He's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So this person was sanctified by this blood and now he's profaning it. And and what they're basically doing by profaning the blood of of Jesus is to to basically call it common or unholy. There's nothing special about it. And then finally he says, you've insulted the Holy Spirit. He says, you've outraged the spirit of grace. You've insulted the Holy Spirit who is the one who declares our inheritance. And by rejecting that inheritance, which he has declared to us, which he has testified to us, which he has witnessed to us, we are rejecting that very inheritance that he declares to us. I believe that this is the unforgivable sin found in Matthew uh, 12, 31 through 32, where it says that if you profane the Holy Spirit or to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to call him a liar by rejecting what he is testifying to you. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to convict the world concerning sin, amen, that they need a savior and concerning judgment that the, the world the, the rule of this world has already been judged. he is, he is speaking to us, convicting of us of our sin, not, not the sins that we've committed, but just the reality that we need a savior and by rejecting what he is telling us, we're calling him a liar, and that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's outraging the spirit of grace. And if anybody continues on in doing these things, they're going to fall into the hands of a living God to reap judgment. Now the, the good news is is if you ever find yourself, in, or you find yourself in this position or you know somebody in this position, it's not too late. They can always repent and come back. They have up to the moment of their last breath to make that decision. But if they don't, it says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is not a place where you want to be. Because you know what? It's the only place that you'll ever get what you truly deserve. So many people want what they deserve. What a foolish request. (laughs) I want grace and mercy. I want to not get what I deserve. But to fall into the hands of a living God is to get what you truly deserve, amen? And then verse 32 through 34, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So, after this rather poignant warning that the author has given, he tells them to remember the days following their decision to put their faith in Jesus Christ right after they first learned of him. And in that time, they remained faithful, even though it cost them much. He says, look, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They were persecuted. If you look at the history of this time, it was likely that they were drawn from their houses and beaten and and treated so poorly He says, or sometimes you were a partner with those who were treated, so they were risking their very own standing in the community, the very own privilege in the community to stand with those who were going through these things. When they first got saved, they were enduring all kinds of struggles. And he wanted to remind them to listen, recall those days Stand firm like you did in those days. Confess your hope without wavering like you did in those days. And they held fast and maintained their joy because they, they, they had compassion on those in prison. They accepted the plundering of their property. They got taken advantage of, their stuff taken from them. But they maintained their faith because they knew that all of that stuff was worth nothing compared to the possession and an inheritance that was coming to them and an abiding one they knew jesus was coming back they knew what they had looked forward in the future and they could deal with anything at this moment so the author wanted them to remember their past faithfulness so that they could be encouraged to maintain that faithfulness even now and not be tempted to look backwards to a system that could never save them it's amazing how quickly we want to look back just because things get difficult when the, the, the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, it didn't take very long. We're like, oh, we could just go back and be slaves again because then at least we had food. If we could just go back and be oppressed again, it would be so much better than this being free. We think it's silly, but it doesn't take long to examine your own life to either see yourself living that out in reality or at least have been tempted to just go back. Has anybody ever been, look at the good side, anybody ever blessed with a new job, new responsibilities, new pay, things are going well, and about two months in, you're like, maybe I want to go back with no responsibilities, go back. We're so tempted to look back and go back to things that aren't actually better for us because we quickly forget the bad and only remember the brief good, and we want that back. He continues on, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Therefore, what therefore since you remember your former days, because of these things, because of how you endured, don't throw away your confidence now. And he doesn't want him to throw it away because it comes with a great reward. Things may be tough now in church, even for you in your own life, things may be tough now. But just like them, we could look forward. We need to look forward to something that can never be taken away. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how hard it is, we need to keep looking forward to something that can never be stolen away. And he encouraged them because he knew that they would need it. He says, look, you have need of endurance. Do you guys know what the word endurance means? The definition is the fact or power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving way. The fact that they needed to endure means that they were going through some stuff that it was unpleasant or a difficult process or situation. The reality is, is these believers were going to continue to face hardships. They were going to continue to go through difficult times. And he says, look, don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. But instead, endure what you are going through. Because knowing that once you have done the will of God, you will receive what you were promised. The truth is is that we have a reward that has been promised by God. And of all people, to receive their word, God is the one that will never go back on it. All men will eventually let you down at some point. And I don't just mean men, I mean women too, in case you ladies were, yeah, he's not talking about us. All people will let you down at some point. Your friends, your family, even your pastor will let you down at some point. But God will never let you down. And these tough times are not the times to turn away from God, but instead to press in towards him doing the will of God so that you may receive what is promised. God is going to keep his word if we will endure to the end. Amen? And then we'll go ahead and end here in 37 through 39. It says, forget a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. One thing that would encourage these readers and should encourage us is that Jesus is coming back and he's going to be bringing his plan of salvation to completion. Amen. He's going to put every enemy under, the, under his feet. It'll be done. And he, the, writer, the, the writer here quotes from Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. That's what this, uh, you had a little while, the coming... Uh, One will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. and And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He's quoting there to remind these readers that Jesus is coming back. The day of the Lord is coming and the blessings that come with that will so far outweigh everything that we're dealing with, any struggle, any pain, any discomfort that we feel now or in the future is going to be overshadowed by the reality of his return and those who remain faithful to god are the righteous who shall live by faith that is mentioned here but those who reject jesus and turn from faith because times are tough are the ones in whom the lord is not pleased and by rejecting the son of god they're forfeiting their heavenly blessing and their eternal security but the writer knew that the ones who were reading this letter are not those. He says, look, the ones who do that, they're not, they're not pleasing to God. They're forfeiting their blessing and eternal security. But not us. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Instead, these are going to be the ones who continue in their faith. They're going to continue in their confession of hope. They're going to continue in love. And because of that, they're going to secure, due to their endurance of faith, they're going to secure their heavenly blessing and eternal security that was given to them by what Jesus accomplished. Amen. So church, I would encourage each and every one of us to make sure that we're in that group. Let's hold fast to our confession. Let's continue in the faith. And let's endure through every struggle that comes our way because the one who has promise is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.